Hello, welcome back to Talking Their Language with Helen Bodell. We are on our second episode of the academic year and it's brilliant that you've come back to listen. We've got today um, Susan Stewart and in this episode we interview Susan on the topic of multilingual pupils and creating homeschool connections. We'll talk about engaging with parents in order to better understand pupils' language portraits or profiles, how to encourage home language use and how to tap into the cultural richness of multilingual families. Susan's director at Articulate Multilingual and has lived and worked in South Africa, Thailand and the UAE, Belgium, Oman, Sweden and the UK. Susan has raised two bilingual children and is a lifelong learner of languages, speaking to varying degrees, English, French, Dutch, German, Afrikaans, Swedish, Arabic and BSL, which is quite a list. Susan has a background in international education, leading multilingual language programmers and creating cohesive language curricula rooted in a research-driven practice. Susan delivers regular parent workshops on raising bilingual children and has a particular interest in language policy as a driving force in promoting multilingualism within families, schools and on local and national levels. That is some introduction, Susan. Good morning. How are you? you. I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for uh, having me with you on this. Oh, brilliant. Um, So, yeah, what a fantastic um, sort of thing that you're going on there. Um, Really interesting, two bilingual children. So you've been there from the start um, with it at home. And then obviously you've done a lot with the education world too. So having a look at language portraits and profiles, what do you mean by the term language portrait? Do you want to explain to the listeners? Yeah, sure. I like to think of it just as all the languages that pupils have, or adults, anyone has at their disposal, almost like a a basket you carry around with yourself. And then depending who you're engaging with or where you are, you might pull out one language or another. What's interesting when we start, you know, building up that understanding of a language portrait is, is, you know, does somebody have maybe passive knowledge of a language so maybe they understand it but they they're not um, as confident speaking it uh, just like uh, my children in fact can read French very well but but are not as confident in writing it language portraits obviously change over time um, as languages get added um, and different languages take on different uh, importance or usefulness but also they're very um, you know more dynamically so really from situation to situation. And I think here we can even talk about monolinguals having a language portrait, because even a monolingual who might only in the UK speak English, they might use a version of English at home with parents or with grandparents. And that's very different from the language they'll use in the classroom or with their friends in the playground. So so this is not just restricted to, to multilingual pupils. Yeah, that's really, really interesting, isn't it? You can tell um, when you, like you say, when you're at work or when you're with different colleagues, whatever, you definitely change your language, don't you? So that's really interesting that you can use it with monolingual pupils too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and that becomes then inclusive. Uh, and, and, and we realise uh, that we should include everything um, that we have at our disposal. And what kinds of questions do you have to gain, uh, sort of have to ask to gain a better understanding of a language portrait or profile? What do you think needs to be asked by the educator? Mm. I think um, I think uh, the first thing is to know uh, what languages are spoken, but then but then more than that, sort of who who are they um, using those languages with, and where are they using them? So we're looking not just uh, we're looking at the family uh, context, we're looking at the wider community, we're looking at schooling and previous uh, schooling experiences. 
and also possibly if they go back to a home country or home countries various times a year. Uh, so, so all of those things kind of build up where they use it. Really important is also to to ask finer questions like, well, maybe dad uses French with the children, but maybe the children respond in English. Okay. Uh, and that, again, that often changes over time. And I saw that with my children. When they were younger and we live, were living in Belgium, they spoke French to one another. We moved to uh, Dubai. And within a couple of months, the language of children became English. They were being schooled in English and they started using English with one another. So again, capturing those, those finer aspects and then also asking clever little questions or letting it come out of the conversation of what the attitudes are that the children have and the parents have to the different languages. So do they think that one language is more important than the other and why? Okay, yeah. So would you have like a, an interview style with the child as well as the parents? And would that be together or separately? You know, in the school, yeah. you want to find this information out. Uh, so, so the way I always did it, I used to, initially, I had a questionnaire. Okay. And then depending on what came out of the questionnaire, I would make contact with the parent. Over time, I discovered that the more that I invested in the beginning, engaging with parents, uh, the better our relationship was over time. So it turned, I wouldn't even call it an interview. I would call it a getting to know you chat. Yeah. And ideally the child would be there too. Right. Because, because that was also a way for them to, to engage with the school. So it was, let's say, an informal chat and then I would take notes. And I didn't even ask questions in a, in a, in, in a kind of, formal way let's say but I always at the end of it had asked the questions I needed to ask yeah Mm. and so once you'd done that on paper did you have like an online version for teachers to access did you yeah yes Uh, so that's that's where uh, it becomes uh, let's say hard work but yes you know having that rich um, knowledge and then finding ways to disperse that in the school is a challenge that I worked on but I think at the end of the day very often, if I picked up on something very pertinent, I would pass it on immediately to the future class teacher, in the case of a primary teacher. Uh, if I, um, But also, the position that I had in school, I was known to be that person that held that knowledge. So then if teachers had uh, questions, they would often come to me. I did have it in writing, but very quickly, as soon as you put these kind of things in boxes and in writing, you lose some of the subtlety. Yeah, and and so often uh, it was quicker to have a conversation. Yeah, that. Um, so, why do you think it is important that all teachers and sort of staff have an understanding of language portraits? So, why is it so important that everybody mm. is on board? I think that there's so many assumptions uh, on the part of of teachers who look often at passports or at backgrounds and just make assumptions on what the child might speak or not or there's often very often a total lack of knowledge and that might be because the teacher thinks that English is the most important and kind of disregards everything or they might uh, see a child struggling in English assume it's because their dominant language is the home language the child's struggling often in the home language and the parents are assuming the child's strongest language is English and so and so all of those things that can happen and then when we're not talking to one another have real impacts on, on children. I think all of this also, you know, language portraits and, and is, is linked to children's senses of identity. Yeah. 
yeah. and and where they feel they belong. And we want them to feel they belong uh, in school, but also at home, also back in their home country. And an identity, just like language use, is very fluid and dynamic. And and we can't force a child to uh, to take on something. It might be that uh, at a certain point they reject a little bit their home language. And then over time they go back to it. I saw that with my children. Yeah. And it's it's very much linked to the friends they have, to the attitudes their parents have. But for a teacher to have that knowledge and and not to assume that the child is proud of their home language when maybe they're not, yeah. is really is really key. And then obviously our role is to uh is to work with that child and 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 build up that uh um healthy sense of identity. Yeah, and it's about, like you say, promoting those home languages. And sometimes, I mean, especially teenagers, if they're going into a high school, you're trying to fit in. It's all of that as well, isn't it? And it's it's a difficult time for any teenager. And if you've got all, all the things going on, it's it can be hard, can't it? Absolutely. And, and I think allowing uh, children to, and, and definitely teenagers, to, to, to choose who they want to be at a certain time, but also to let them know that, the school is a space where they can have all of those um, pieces of their identity and all their languages are welcome within the school and they're all respected and uh, we're all fascinated by them. So that's our role. And, and the rest of it, we, we let them choose. Yeah, that's, that's brilliant. Um, so we talk about parents um, and welcoming parents into school and you've talked about having that sort of general chat at the beginning when you first meet them um, and how further do you engage parents within the school community? Uh, so I, I think as I mentioned earlier you know I established a relationship from day one or even from day minus one yeah so it was working very closely in in, in uh, collaboration with the admissions department and, uh, and and kind of everyone talking to one another. Later on um, uh, I also set up a, an English class for parents. Uh, it was an extra hour on my, my teaching load, but the impact that had was massive. So yeah. often uh, you might find in a family in particular that the, the working parent is, is confident in English and then there might be a second parent who's less. Offering a, a free of charge once a week hour class was a, a brilliant way to engage that second parent who was often the main caregiver to yeah. come into school uh, to develop some confidence in using language, to meet other parents who were in a similar situation. Yeah. And that's when also then they often had questions about the school, really practical ones. They were coming from different schooling systems. They were coming from uh, different expectations on their part of how they were meant to engage with the school. And so, so sort of bringing them in and making them welcome and letting them know that we didn't see their lack of English as a problem yeah. was also a really powerful message to them and to their children. Yeah, it's about building that trust, isn't it, as well? And if they can see you're putting that extra time in, the extra effort um, with yeah. them, they can see that you, you do it with the children too, which is really important. Yeah. Um, I think, sorry, one, one more thing there also. I think the other thing is we really should position ourselves as schools and as teachers, as sort of co-learners. We can actually learn a lot from the parents. Yeah. In particular about the, the previous experiences of the children, in particular schooling systems, which are so different. We had um, a few years ago a, a large um, Kazakh community in, in the school I was working in. And the children told us, but also the parents, 
of, you know, the schooling system was very chalk talk. And the children were used to just sitting there and not even asking questions. In fact, questions were frowned upon. They were a sign of weakness and not paying attention. And so having that knowledge meant that we were we had to gently uh, reassure those uh, the, those pupils that it was okay. In fact, we and so I used to with those pupils tell them, "I love questions. Please ask me questions." And it was it was to kind of redress and 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 uh, um, uh, let them know that. But I only knew that because I I they felt like they could tell me that kind of knowledge like the parents wow i mean some students some teachers in a high school might think oh they're being quite quiet that's a bit odd maybe and then like you say you know until you'd been through that conversation yeah 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 and what we don't want to ever go to again is making sweeping cultural statements about certain groups in our school that might be too quiet or too loud or too disrespectful or you know you know we we want to understand yeah. And, and then gently coax uh, pupils into into the ethos of the particular school. Yeah. And like you say, find out about those individual cultural identities and working with them mm-hmm. on an individual basis. Yeah. Um, so you've talked about how well it worked um, working with those parents. And did you find there were any barriers um, to engage in parents? And how did you sort of overcome those? I think probably uh, the biggest barrier was maybe uh, around uh, sort of assumptions about, uh, um, again, the value of certain languages or or how, how you acquire languages. Uh, and in particular, you know, um, parents who might uh, have too high expectations or too low expectations for, for, for their children. Yeah. Um, and so again, you know, those can can be overcome with conversation. I think also by engaging with parents from day one, you establish yourself as the expert. Yeah. And and therefore them knowing that in the school there is somebody who is an expert in multilingualism, working with multilingual children, means that that that, that helps you, um, if need be. Uh, you know, have more trickier conversations, often around language choices, for example, okay, or yeah. parents being disappointed or anxious about uh, progress in language. Yeah. And yeah, if they've got confidence in you and your decisions, then like mm-hmm. you can have those difficult conversations further down the line. Yeah. Um, and what would you say the common parental concerns and questions were? I'm guessing one of those is sort of disregarding the home language, maybe, and just speaking English. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So so they, you know, parents rightly so are worried about their children missing out on the content of, of school. They're worried about them being all alone and having no friends. Yeah. And they're worried, you know, about them not developing fluency fast enough. Very often, a very common question I have is, will my child have a nice British accent? Wow. And of course, <laughs> very often. And and my my reply often to that is, well, you know, for me, an accent in a language is a little bit like physical appearance. And I said, we don't we don't, um, you know, talk about how how we look because that's rude. So I said, we don't talk about accents. And then often also, you know, that's funny because there's no such thing as a British accent, as we know. <laughs> and so uh, uh and and often parents ask me that, and as you can hear, I don't have a British accent; I have a South African one. So those are often the sort of the the, the questions or the the concerns, and um, you know, and and 
our role again is to to gently reassure uh, and and gently kind of say this is important, this isn't important. Yeah, that's really. Um, so the common misconceptions that parents have, I'm guessing they're again the same. Yeah, I, I think um, a lot of parents that I've engaged with both um, within school, but also the, the the workshops that I run for bilingual families, the majority, I would say, probably about 80 to 90 percent of parents are sequential bilinguals, which means they grew up with one language and they added on another language, but often they added that language within a classroom setting. Okay. Uh, many of them might have learned English in a classroom. And so for those parents, they kind of see acquiring a new language has been really difficult and hard work and generally have learned it through a sort of grammar heavy prescriptive approach. And so, you know, um, having parents understand that their children are going through a different process yeah. uh, because they're immersed in the language and that, uh, you know, probably they'll get that verbal fluency quite quite easily within the playground. And that, uh, you know, building the literacy um, and the academic levels of languages they need will address that within the school. Uh, yeah, one of the things that I never, ever ask parents to do is to rate their children's proficiency in languages. Uh, sometimes th that's on sort of uh, admissions forms. And I, I generally don't do that because it's often a tick box and it's uh it's it doesn't um it's not any way fine-tuned enough for our purposes but also parents might when you ask them those questions they might over or under exaggerate yeah uh their children's proficiency because they're scared of them not getting in or not getting help for their english so it can it can go both ways yeah thinking and also sort of preempting what they think you're thinking so then trying to reflect that on the sheet maybe exactly exactly um yeah and also it's not a true reflection I guess like you say there's all those different areas where you use language differently that the parent might not even yeah. know about that they can't put down on a, on a piece of paper exactly exactly and even for, for some children their home language for example my children mainly used uh French with their dad within the home and they actually didn't have much of the children's lingo apart from when we went back once a year and they spent time with their cousins and so so you know also there they 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 had a very restricted use of the language let's say for many years yeah this has changed um so how what, what would you say your main message would be um that you'd want parents to receive um going forwards and how can people that are listening maybe get that message mm. across within the school yeah I think the main message is to reassure parents it will all be fine. We've seen hundreds of pupils arrive at the school just like their child, and they really, really, really shouldn't worry about English. Yeah. Because, uh, in fact, what I often say is there are 60 million, I'm not sure if that's the right amount, of British people who are going to help your child learn English. That's not your role. Yeah. Um, and, and, and sort of take that worry away. And then absolutely what you mentioned earlier keep speaking in, in your home language at home. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's for two reasons, you know, but number one is we want parents to have an amazing relationship with their children. And yeah. that, for me, that's more important than any academic achievement is if they don't have that relationship, we're going to struggle across the board. But also, you know, we want them to have discussions at home in their home language about what they've been learning at school. 
yeah. we want them, the parents to add to that knowledge base and for them to bring that back into the school. So yeah, those are my, those are my two main messages. <laughs> yeah. And it's like pre-teaching, isn't it? Like you want them to have those conversations mm-hmm. about a topic that they might have such yeah. rich knowledge at home and they can then, like you say, adapt in school and try and bring that across and use translation tools and things if they need to, to get that knowledge. Exactly. 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 Um, so how would you um, or how do you connect the children's family language with, with school life? So we've talked about hmm. how important the home language is, but how can teachers maybe bring that into the classroom? Yeah, so I think, you know, within the classroom, as we were just saying, tapping into children's previous learning experiences and life experiences can really enrich that classroom. Uh, that uh, Japanese student who might be sitting there in the science lesson in key stage four, um, looking a bit lost. Is he lost because he's never learnt about, uh, I don't know, the electric circuit or is he lost because he doesn't have the language to do it? So finding ways to tap into, have you learnt this before? You have learnt it before. Brilliant. All you need then is probably a vocabulary list. Yeah. Yeah. But if you haven't learnt it, then you know what? Go away. Read about it quickly in Japanese. That's going to help you understand when I start explaining it. So really, you know, really drawing on those previous experiences. Um, But also, you know, that can be really enriching because think about a child who might have um, uh, had, I don't know, you're talking about um, uh, volcanoes, you know, the child coming from Hawaii or the child coming from Iceland is going to have something to add to the conversation that, you know, a child who's only lived in the UK won't have. So, so think, you know, think about it again as a, as a, as a resource. Yeah. Um, and then I think another, and then talking really at a, a language level, you know, um, many, many teachers speak different languages and that helps us. So we know, for example, that in uh, Russian, there's no definite article, I believe. And you can hear it in, in a child's, um, when they use English, but also, you know, saying to a child, this is how we do it in English. How does it work in your language? And, and forcing a child to, to do that comparison of their home language with, with English uh, is really enriching, builds up their, their, their knowledge of, of both languages. But also then as a teacher, you, you know, you, you're armed with that. So you know that there's certain grammar points or language points that with those groups of students, you need to uh, be more explicit about uh, than others. I, years ago, I had a, a class of two students, one Italian and one Kazakh. And it was really funny because the Italian student used the too much and the Kazakh student never used it. And I used to say to them, can you not just give each other a few those? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, having the, but having those conversations is really enriching for the child and, and the teacher. And actually, to be honest, for the whole class. So, yeah. again, um, you know, building up a curiosity and a fascination uh, in the whole class about each other's languages, really enriching. Yeah, you can't, um, you sort of can't recreate that when you've got such a diverse classroom and so much knowledge and so much enrichment. It's just magical, isn't it? You know, you can't get that back and you can't recreate it every year. Every year is different. No. Which is what's brilliant, isn't it? But I think when you, when you as a school have um, an attitude of welcoming uh, languages into your school, it happens naturally. Uh, Years ago, I was on playground duty and there was a little Turkish girl and a Kazakh girl swinging together and they were counting. And I said, what language are you speaking? And they said, well, we've discovered that uh, the numbers in our two languages are similar. 
Now that happened in the playground, yeah. but that happened because I know the teacher in the classroom used to bring out all the languages and they were just proud and curious. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. Little little linguists in the playground. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, like you say, you can't really um I don't know, you can't sort of force that, can you? That that culture is created by all the staff from the top down. Yes. Um and yeah. across everybody. Yeah. And as soon as you've sort of created that, then that's where the magic mm-hmm. happens, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah. And you know, everything we've talked about until now costs nothing. Um, yeah. not even much in time uh, you know often I know schools are, are struggling often there's, there's not enough uh, Yale uh, teaching time provided but, but a lot of these things any teacher can do and they can also take place in the classroom in the playground uh, even at reception so, so it's not just the teaching staff but all staff if you, if you make that uh, part of what the school does yeah, that's really important to know, isn't it? Like you say, budgets can be tight. And I think sometimes as an EAL lead, you might feel a bit isolated and that you feel like you're sort of fighting the fight on your own. But like you say, even from all members of staff, from the lunch staff to the mm-hmm. um, people on the front desk, it's really important that everybody has that welcoming culture. Yes, absolutely. Um, and in fact, practically... Uh, one of the loveliest initiatives I ever uh, had in school was we had a we decided to have a week long celebration of the linguistic diversity in the school. But it was a school that did teach quite a few home languages, so we started with those. We had a list of twenty languages, and all we asked it was sort of po- just post COVID. So we said, can we have a ninety second video of each language, either something interesting linguistically or or something sort of entertaining in the language. And everyone went off and made these videos. And every morning we just showed sort of five languages. We planned it all out all through the week. What we didn't realize, um, and, and I also approached a few staff members who I knew spoke different languages. So we, we pulled out a few more. But over the week, the number of students and staff that came up and said, oh, but I also have a language that's not there. We added another 10 languages over the week. Wow. Because all of a sudden, you know, it became no one wanted to be left out. Yeah. And and so we, we coined that the hidden languages in the school. So w- what are the hidden languages that that the lunch ladies have, that yeah. that the reception staff have, that the children have? Um, you know, some of our children, you might know they speak Arabic, but they might have Berber that they think isn't an important language because it's not written. And, and so kind of, again, find, finding a formal platform for that. But the impact of that event went beyond the week. Yeah. Because we'd done that, all of a sudden, the conversations that I overheard in the playground, in the staff room, it went on for ages and ages after that. Um, children who had had parts of their identity hidden had come out. Yeah, um, yeah those kind of things are great. <laughs> yeah, they are. That's what makes it so fun about teaching, isn't it? Um, I can yeah. imagine that was such brilliant conversations. And like you say, creating those videos and just letting students watch how, you know, how much you love it and how important it is for everybody mm-hmm. to hear it. Yeah. Um, well, one, one of the other things that uh, we used to do, which is also really impactful and going back to sort of bringing parents into the school, was having, uh, you know, a five, ten minute storytelling time. So imagine the child who's newly arrived from Turkey. 
doesn't speak much English. And imagine that um, a teacher or a parent or even an older student comes into his classroom and, and with him or with him sitting next to um, the, the adult reads a story in Turkish. And imagine for that child thinking, I'm the only person here who understands the story and maybe helping the adult explain the story uh, and, and, and making the other children curious about their language. Really powerful. We used to do that once a week. And, uh, uh, you know, so again, and that was, and that actually came about because we had a 10 minute dead time between, I think, registration and the assembly. And we said, what should we do with it? Yeah. And somebody had that idea. Um, again, a 10 minute massive impact uh, on the class, on the child, on the school. Yeah, definitely. I was going to say, if you'd, um, with classroom time, you could also do that like on a lunch or something if you. Yeah, yeah. Offered it as sort of a session yeah. at lunchtime that people could come and listen. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and, you know, it's, um, you know, enabling other children to, to see a language also. Uh, you know, hearing it, seeing it, um, yeah, it, it it just let's say normalizes uh, normalizes multilingualism. Uh, yeah, uh, so my last probably practical example was we also did a, a research project in the school I was in, looking at the linguistic landscape of the school. So we 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 went and and saw what languages were visual in the in the landscape, but also we involved children in it. So we we engaged them to take pictures of the school, but also to kind of tell us which languages they thought weren't represented in the school. Yeah. Um, and that was a real wake-up call for us because they associated language with language classrooms, but not with many of the common spaces in the school. And so from that, then, you know, uh, we, we changed the way we, we displayed and, and sort of had language just visual, visually around the school. Yeah, was that like examples of students' work and things as well in different languages? Yeah. As well yeah. as like signs and things like that. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it was children produced, school produced. Uh, um, yeah, just having it up. And sometimes you see it in classrooms, but they're not outside the, the classrooms. And so kind oh, of definitely. expanding that. I know sometimes you can have a welcome sign in the hallway, but, may, you know, how far does it go through mm. the school? You know, it's not yeah. just for showing yeah. the front entrance, yeah. but... yeah. And seeing students yeah. work is and, really powerful. And the danger with welcome signs sometimes is that when people see them, the first thing they do is look for their language. And then, and you know, and, and you're always going to miss someone out. And so one of the best things I saw recently was a colleague of mine did that and then put a pen and a few pieces of paper and said, if you can't see your language, please add it. Yeah. And it was a lovely way then to 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 go just because we don't have your language, you know. It uh, doesn't mean it's not welcome. Please add it. Really powerful message. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, yeah. I love the way when I first met you, Susan, and you had the blackboard with the languages um, behind. Yeah. Um, that sort of thing is brilliant, isn't it? You know, having sort of piece of chalk, you add your own. Yeah. Add your yeah, own. exactly. So um, because the danger sometimes of a marketing department does that kind of thing is they're going to Google Translate and there's going to be mistakes. And that's even worse than not having it there sometimes. <laughs> so, so having having people produce produce the signage with you uh, is inclusive. It's welcoming. It's exactly the message we want to have in our schools. Yeah, that's um, that's really important to think um, for those people that are listening that may be creating displays and things at the moment at the beginning of the academic year. That going forwards, there's some really practical, brilliant ideas. 
Um, and have you any got any final messages, Susan, for those people that are listening that maybe have started new to roll coming in September? It's a bit of a daunting year ahead. Where can they, what could they start with maybe from tomorrow that might just be a, an easy thing that they could do? I think, um, I think I'll go back to a point I made a little bit earlier. Uh, learn from your uh, multilingual families and your multilingual students. Uh, use it as a, use it as, as free PD that's in your classroom sitting right in front of you. And, uh, and by doing that, uh, you'll enrich the relationship with the children, with the family. Uh, you can then spread your knowledge to other colleagues. So if you get that information, go and have a little conversation with the PE teacher or the drama teacher. Uh, that's going to help that child uh, every day. Yeah, that's that's brilliant advice. Um, and thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge. That's been really, really enriching. Um, and if you've got any questions, Susan, you're on social media. Can people get in touch? I'm, I'm on social media, yes. Uh, LinkedIn's probably the best place to find me. Okay, so I will add in any links for Susan um, in the bio at the bottom um, for you to be able to get in touch. Um, your website and all those details will be in there too. Um, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. This podcast was brought to you by Helen Bodell from Twinkle EAL. We have over 900,000 resources and you can find all of our EAL resources at www.twinkle.co.uk. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and Pinterest by searching Twinkle EAL. Why not subscribe to our podcast? You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music and redcircle.com. You could also leave us a review. If you have any questions you'd like answering on our podcast, please get in touch on our social channels.